Okay, flip over to Jude, verses 24 and 25. Join me there. We will go to God in prayer before we get into His Word. Ask for His blessing. Our Father, as Your Word says, You are the one who guards us from stumbling. I plead with You this morning that You would show Yourself to be true in that promise and keep each person in this room and in this congregation as a whole from stumbling. And may your word be a means to that end, even this morning, and may it be a preserving grace and a sustaining and nourishing grace in sustaining our faith. And may we in the world around us see and know that, that you are God by your mighty work in our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, I pray. Amen. Well, I'll just remind you of the context briefly before we read God's Word. Jude is writing in this letter to urge us to contend for the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. And through the book, he's kind of identified and, and warned, you know, these are what the false teachers look like, and, and you need to be careful uh, with them. And then last time we were in Jude, he urged us to, to keep ourselves in the love of God by building ourselves up in the faith and through prayer and um, as well as keeping each other accountable, keeping our fellow brethren accountable to the faith once for all delivered. And so now, as with many of the letters, he concludes with a doxology. And I just wanted to briefly point out that sometimes doxologies and benedictions are um, confused. And so just real quick as a definition, a benediction is a, a well-wishing it's an expression of blessing, usually directed toward a person or group, but it's also kind of directed toward God, and it's a desire and a prayer for a blessing. So a common benediction that we all know is, Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you, to lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Where a doxology is from the word, Greek word doxa, which means to praise. So a doxology is a praise, where a benediction is a blessing and a prayer for blessing. So a common doxology we know from the end of Romans is to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So sometimes doxologies are used as a benediction at the end of the service, but if we want to get nitpicky, they, they shouldn't be. There should be a, some sense of blessing attached to that. Um, so this is the doxology of Jude. So let's stand and I'll read it and if you would follow along. <coughs> Beginning in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. question this morning is, what confidence do you have that you'll be able to stand strong in the face of false teaching, of false doctrine? Um, reading through Jude, or just looking at around at the world around, it seems like the, the forces of evil kind of deliver body blow after body blow, and, and it's exhausting. It's a long, grueling process, and it never really seems to stop. And so the question to me arises as we read through Jude and see these challenges in, in the world around us, well, 
What are my chances? What are the odds that I can stand up against something like that? Why do I think I can have any effect and not just vainly beat the air? The observation of history, and and from what I've seen, and as well as the present age, really paints a scary picture, and that is that there are lots of people who are smarter than me, more devout than me, more loving, harder working than me, Lots of them have been swept away by false doctrine. So, why do I think I can fare any better? Another question. What does the sovereignty of God mean to you? I mean, is it an intellectually satisfying piece to your theological puzzle? Or is it just kind of a part a part of a tidy system of doctrine? Um, and of course it is those things, I think. But is the sovereignty of God precious to you? And that's the question we need to be asking because as important as a logical system of doctrine is, the place where the rubber meets the road is when we apply that system to practical everyday problems. And the everyday practicality of the sovereignty of God speaks volumes in answering that question, how can I have confidence that I can stand firm against the powerful schemes of the devil? So that's what we see here, beginning in verse 24. Read verse 24 again. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Jude's call in this letter has been a passionate plea, and it's a plea really to vigilance, to diligence, to to purity, to perseverance, and it's a plea to to remove falsehood from our midst, and to rescue the weak from falsehood, and to keep ourselves in the love of God, and a plea really to contend for the faith, which all all of that to me, (laughs) that list sounds daunting. It sounds very challenging, which may evoke uh, a couple of emotions or reactions. Um, the first reaction might be kind of the, the Jonah response, like, I'm not the guy. <laughs> you got the wrong guy. I'm, I'm not strong enough. It's too hard. It's too scary. On the other hand, we might try to take um, the weight of the world on our shoulders. That'd be the other response, is to say, we can do it. We can do it all ourselves. We can do it in our own strength. And both responses uh, are, are deadly. Jude mercifully nests his challenging call to diligent faithfulness in the context of God's faithfulness. Amen. And I, I love bookends in Scripture, these ends that, that kind of say the same thing, and they contain the whole message within these two bookends. So Jude's call exists between these two bookends. So looking at verse 1 of Jude... To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. See that? We're kept for Jesus Christ. How can we stand? We're kept for Jesus Christ. And then at the very end of the book, now, in verse 24, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. See, we we do have uh, work to do. Jude's call isn't hypothetical. We have a duty, we have things for which we as Christians must labor and strive with all of our God-given might. Um, But that whole, 
I ain't the guy mentality is, is not an option for Christians. And those things only make light, however, in the context of God's sovereign work in our lives. Our, our faithfulness only makes sense in the light of God's faithfulness. Uh, R.C. Sproul has pointed out that uh, the, the preservation, the term preservation of the saints is a better term than perseverance of the saints we do need to persevere as saints and it's real blood sweat and tears perseverance as jesus said in matthew the one who endures to the end will be saved but it's only by god's preserving power that we persevere <clears throat> philippians 1 6 i am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of jesus christ which is the idea that Jude conveys when he says, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Um, Psalm 24 is one of my favorite <coughs> psalms. We've gone through it recently in Sunday school. And in verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 24, um, it really paints an intimidating picture of what it means to be able to come and to stand in the presence of God. It says, And who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. I I don't know about you, but that doesn't describe me, at least not perfectly, by a long shot. So based on that standard, I I can't stand in the presence of the the glory of God. Not, Not on my own two feet, which makes Jude's statement here so alluring that that God is able to make me stand blameless in the presence of His glory. And really to do so, not trembling in fear, but, but what he says, with great joy. Contrast that to what the false teachers will experience in the presence of the glory of God. Um, judgment may not be the first thing that comes to mind when we think the glory of God. But but consider as just one example, and if you'll turn there actually, uh, Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28, beginning in verse 20. In the context of this is God's oracles of judgment upon the nations, and this one specifically on Sidon. Ezekiel 28, 20-24. The glory of God's judgment. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face towards Sidon, and prophesy against her, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon. And I will manifest my glory in your midst. And they shall know that I am the Lord, and I will execute judgments in her, and manifest my holiness in her. For I will send pestilence into her, and blood into her streets, and the slain shall fall in her midst, by the sword that is against her on every side. Then they will know that I am the Lord. You see that, the glory of the Lord in judgment? So when the objects of God's wrath meet His glory, they they shriek in horror. 
But when the objects of God's mercy in Jesus Christ meet with the very same glory, we rejoice with great exaltation. The Westminster Confession in chapter 3 points out that God saves to the praise of His glorious grace and He (coughs) judges to the praise of His glorious justice. We can all remember being corrected by a teacher on the whole may versus can situation, and I was looking at that, and actually can can mean permission, just for the record, for all you <laughs> teachers out there. But nevertheless, typically may is uh, a word for permission, and can describes a- ability. Amen. <laughs> um, so... Our standing blameless before God, though, is not an issue of uh, may, per, of permission. He doesn't say that you may come into my presence and be blameless if you wish. Right. It's an issue of can. It's an issue of ability. We cannot stand blameless in His glory. We are not able. We are not capable. It says He is able to make us stand blameless. That word able is the Greek word dunamis, which means ability or, or power. God has the power to make us stand in the presence of His glory blameless. So I just ask you this morning, do you doubt your own ability to live up to Jude's high standards from this letter? Because if you do, that's good, because that's the first road, first step on the road to recovery from Pharisaism. But the other question is, do you doubt God's ability to preserve and keep you to the end? Charles Spurgeon said, If you take away from me the doctrine of final perseverance of the saints, I have not anything left that is worth keeping. I should not care about the gospel if that essential feature of it were gone. The truth seems to me to be the very soul of it. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So we have love, or we have confidence, because in love He has predestined us to adoption as sons. Because our, our loving, adoptive Father is greater than all, and no one will snatch us out of our Father's hand. Our confidence that we can stand blameless in the presence of, of that awful glory of God is that He took our filthy robe and dipped them in the blood of His beloved Son, that, that only sacrificial lamb that could atone for sin. And He has put Him forward by a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith so that Jesus has satisfied God's wrath. And the reality is that no person for whom the blood of Christ was shed will will find himself in hell. It's glorious. Now to him who is able. I think I said last week that that the but you, beloved, was one of the most powerful statements in, in the book of Jude, but this is more powerful. Now to him who is able. Those, those words are our confidence. Now Jude continues in verse 24 to show us how the sovereignty of God is displayed um, not only in our preservation and salvation but also in God's eternal reign as king 
over the universe. Verse 25, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Um, Commentator Gene L. Green, I, I thought it was pretty good. He said here in this verse that adoration and ethics clasp hands. That is to say that, that Jude attributes the highest praises to God, and that's his adoration, but also these truths, these attributes, have a dramatic impact on the way we live our lives. There's really only one being in the universe who deserves doxology, the one true God, which is what he says, the, to the only God. And God's oneness is really among the oldest uh, of the confessions of the saints. It's foundational among God's people. The, the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, He is one. And God is jealous for that title of the one true God. We read it this morning. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a, grave, a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I can think here of a messenger, a messenger who writes on behalf of a king, um, and, and that messenger might conclude his kind of correspondence with with some praises of the king. That might seem natural, you know. Now to the great and benevolent ruler of our fine land, be strength, peace, and long life. That sounds normal. And in the same way, this the apostolic band wrote as messengers of the king, messengers of God. And so Jude outlines at the beginning of his letter his credentials as a messenger of God. Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus and brother of James. And so when he and these other New Testament writers um, do this, they ascribe oneness to God. It's, it's really a powerful testament to God's supreme authority as king of kings and lord of lords. And that truth has profound implications for our lives, the way we live our lives. Um, first of all, to, to the false teachers who reject all authority and live as if they were their own autonomous rule unto themselves, uh, you, you can kind of see this as a full frontal assault right, to the only God. It, it's kind of like picture saying, um, you know, in a, in a group of Maduro supporters in Venezuela that, that Juan Guaido is the president. It's a, it's a full frontal assault. Jude's letter was read aloud in the assembly, and the assembly contained a number of extreme, albeit covert, uh, anarchist rebels. And so he, he, in effect here, says, whether or not you recognize God as Lord, he is Lord of heaven and earth. Which means, by implication, all these announcements of judgment that Jude has uttered are, are going to come to pass. God really does have the power and the divine right to bring them to pass. God's oneness also has implications for the doubter and the steadfast saint. Um, to the doubter, God's sovereignty really should tip the scales entirely. When we weigh our options as to who we should follow, because the false teachers and their companions <clears throat> offer enticing benefits and, and they offer a cold shoulder to those who won't follow them. But the benefits of coming into the family of the one true God 
far surpassed those token gifts of the false teachers. And the consequences of rejecting the one true God are far more severe than the cold shoulder of mere men. And to the steadfast saint, our heart should really leap out of our chest when we hear that to the only God. And really this whole doxology gives us ample opportunity for a hearty amen. It's an honor to bend the knee to our God and King. And and even as we admit our own lowly status as offenders of His glory and rejoice as recipients of His mercy. As Jude says, He is also our Savior. He's our one God and He's our Savior. We must never forget that we were once members of, of the anarchist rebel group. God, who is sovereign judge over all, would be perfectly righteous to condemn every one of us. But in his kindness he saved us. Colossians 1, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in Christ's body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So that's better by far than like some presidential pardon type situation uh, here we have the divine son or judge sending his own son to pay the penalty on our behalf and he removed the stain of sin and gave us his perfect righteousness it says later in Colossians and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That is God our Savior. So it makes sin, uh, sense then that, that both really as a frontal assault and uh, as a balm and a rallying cry to the saints that Jude would then ascribe to God, Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. And it's no coincidence that Jude chooses these characteristics that he does. Um, And it's actually striking. If you read the doxologies in the New Testament, they all correspond heavily to the contents of the letter. They're not just kind of random praises, but they relate to what the writer has been saying. Um, Says an example of the doxology in Ephesians now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. If you're familiar with Ephesians, you know he's talking about the church so much and he concludes with such a doxology. So glory, majesty, dominion, and authority all describe God's sovereignty over the earth. Glory and majesty denote honor and a high position of status. And dominion and authority describe his uh, mighty rule and his governance. He is king of kings. And he's the only king of kings, right? But it's interesting, God calls Nebuchadnezzar a king of kings. In Ezekiel 26, 7, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, 
king of kings with horses and chariots and with horsemen and a host of many soldiers. And he really was a king of kings. They took over nations and he was a king of kings. But Nebuchadnezzar was far from being the king of kings. And and we should uh, turn over to Daniel chapter 4 to see that truth unfold. Daniel 4, 29-37 And Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king answered and said Is not this great Babylon which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? That's very unwise to say. (laughs) While the words were still in the king's mouth there fell a voice from heaven O king Nebuchadnezzar to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as feathers eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So the king of kings was humbled by the king of kings. And God sits enthroned as king over all kings, and he says to mankind, your princes are like grasshoppers. To the only God be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Now, Jude here, it's interesting, he, does, he ascribes these titles um, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that phrase could be understood one of two ways. It could be saying that he, God is our Savior through Jesus Christ, um, which is, of course, true. But it could also be saying, and I think this is what he's saying, that he ascribes glory, majesty, dominion, and authority through Jesus Christ. If you remember from the doxology from Romans, it said, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Dr. Green, again here, the New Testament envisions Christ's mediatorial role in worship. All praise and honor are acceptable to God only through Christ. 
a fact that underscores God's transcendence. As Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. So our praises, our worship, our adoration mean nothing really as grasshoppers, as sinners before God. But in the name of Jesus, of his beloved Son, Hebrews says that we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So once again here, our, our attention is drawn to the contrast between the godly and, and the ungodly. And, and, and it's important to understand that that's not the bad and the good, but rather the blessed man and the wicked man. The blessed man, through Jesus Christ, stands blamelessly and confidently before the throne of God and announces praises to his name, while the wicked man acknowledges God only with flippancy and with disregard. One day, though, they will find themselves in the hands of the living God, and they will know that indeed belong to him glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. These attributes are intrinsic to God's very nature. They, they are his. He says that they are from before all time, now, and forever. Uh, well, while I was in seminary, I used to go ice fishing a lot in the wintertime with my brother and my seminary friend, Ryan. And uh, they would often get frustrated with me because though they were using the same bait and the same te- techniques, I would catch more fish than they would. I, I know the preacher isn't supposed to be the hero of his own illustrations, right? But I, I think there's special dispensation about fishing. You're allowed to brag about fishing, right? No, but I would tell them to, to their great irritation you just have to put in the time. Because the truth is, I, I've spent an inordinate amount of time ice fishing. I, I had to learn through painful trial and error that the subtleties of ice fishing, that the size of the line, that the way you jig the lure, that the quantity of bait, you know, and, and most importantly, feeling those light wintertime nibbles and knowing when to set the hook, it takes practice. Now, the point I'm making here is not that I'm a great fisherman but that we have to learn the things we're good at through an expenditure of time and energy. We have to acquire skills. We have to grow and we have to gain knowledge. God, the human nature of Christ accepted, has never learned a single thing. He just is. He did not learn sovereignty. He did not acquire dominion and authority. He did not achieve glory and majesty. These things belong to his very essence. And they have, Jude says, from from the past, from eternity past, from before all time, in the present, right now, and in the future, for all ages. So that's the God we worship. That's the God that Jude directs us to in this doxology. And when we encounter such a God, we're left really with two options. We can bend the knee and honor this God, or we can revolt in pursuit of our own autonomy. And we've seen in the book of Jude, the false teachers have taken the latter road. Despite appearing as docile sheep at the love feasts of the saints, they despise God's glory, majesty, and dominion, and authority. Jude's call is to stand firm, to stand up, and to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, which really is a 
a grueling and colossal battle that we have on our hands. One that each and every saint is called to engage in. But I would plead with you, do not attempt to fight that battle on your own strength. That the only God, our Savior alone, is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand blameless in the presence of His glory with great joy. All praise and glory to that God of hosts. Amen. Amen.